John chapter 10, our continuing work through the Gospel of John, uh, brings us to the 22nd through 30th verse of chapter 10, to a sermon entitled, My Sheep Hear My Voice. It is hard for us to imagine what it must have been like to be witness to the works and the words of Christ, to be able to see what he did with his hands, to be able to hear what he said with our ears. It is a remarkable thing to be able to hear his words preserved here in Scripture and to see the description of his works. It is not unfitting for us to remember that faith comes through hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. Many of us probably imagine that we have faith in God because of us finally being convinced, or of us making up our mind to follow him. But the reality is that the scripture puts forward that faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes through the word of God. That God intended to have his word heard. That God intended to have his works understood. And just interacting with the scriptures themselves works faith into our hearts. And so as we come together every Sunday morning, we have scripture as our focus, singing and fellowship as our response. And here we sit again into the scriptures. And so I would invite you to join me in the scriptures here, John 10, 22 through 30. As we continue to walk through this gospel, a number of things stand out to us. A number of stories, a number of the miracles that Jesus has done, but mostly the words of Christ stand out to us because he holds nothing back as we get to the midway point of this great gospel. He has said hard things before. He has said easy things before. Things that made crowds join him and things that made crowds leave. Both are a part of the words of Christ. Same for the works. It is easy to gather crowds when you're making free food for everyone. It's quite another thing, apparently, when healing a man born blind. One miracle gathers crowds in the tens of thousands. The other one scatters everyone and has people calling for his murder. The words do the same thing. He expresses to them of eternal life and the hope of God and the reality of how God is interacting with the world, but then he'll come out at the end of John 6 and give a message about his blood and his flesh, and unless you drink his blood and eat his flesh, you have no life in you. And thousands upon thousands of people who were following him left that day to where only the 12 disciples were left remaining, standing by him. Everyone else abandoned him. And then he looks at them, and who remembers this at the end of John 6? Are you going to leave too? And what was Peter's marvelous answer? Well, very good. What was it? To whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that you are indeed the Son of God sent into this world. To understand that the message may be hard 
It's to grow in maturity. To submit to the message regardless of whether it's hard or not is to grow further. And today we have an aspect of the message that's very difficult to hear. We don't necessarily like to draw lines through humanity. We don't like to necessarily distinguish, especially in our culture, between those who are the Lord's sheep and those who are not, but Christ challenges us all the same. And he does it out in the open. I would invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read these nine verses. John 10, 22 through 30. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. That would be what we call Hanukkah. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Father, we, we pray for minds that can conceive of this. We pray for hearts that believe it. We pray for desires that love it. Father, we know that these things are far past our natural abilities. Would your spirit who inspired these words so many years ago illumine our hearts this day that we may love your word that we may love one another. We pray that we serve your word this morning and serve one another out of purified hearts for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom of grace. We pray this this day, Father. It is not a small thing we ask. In your son's name, amen. You can have a seat. You can understand why I didn't try to smash the rest of chapter 10 into this passage. The things that Jesus talks about here are simply astounding. It is no small message for him to express to them that saying, it's not ever going to be enough no matter what I say to you. It will not be enough no matter what miracles I work in front of you. You will never believe. This group of of Jews that were staying there had no intention of verifying these things so that they could become Christians. Instead, they were looking to trip him up. They were looking to have his words used against him. They were looking to even have his miracles used against them. They were trying this. They tried it on multiple occasions. They brought a man with a withered hand into the synagogue on the Sabbath to see whether or not Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Sounds great. I would love to heal him on the Sabbath. And they try to get him for working on the Sabbath. And then he just turns and asks them, Wait, so it's wrong to do good on the Sabbath? And then leaves them trying to take the very miracles that he is doing, trying to use people in their weaknesses and in their difficulties to trip up the one who came into the world to save those who had no hope elsewise. 
They were trying to use his words against him. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus answered back and expresses, how about for the gospel, or excuse me, how about for the the teachings of John the Baptist? What authority did he do all these things for? And because they, uh, they feared both the Jews and they also feared their own people, they refused to answer. And every time they try to trip him up, he reveals their hearts. Every time they try to trip him up, he reveals their hearts. Christian, it says to us the same. When we come to the word of God, I hope you intend to have your heart challenged. I hope you intend to have it sanctified. Because running into the words of God, you are never, ever neutral. Either you hear his words or you do not. Either you see his works and bring glory to God or you do not. Either you are his sheep or you are not. And Jesus will face us with this very uncomfortable reality in today's passage. So I hope you have uh, your seatbelts buckled. It's a brutal one. Let's listen. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. What you and I have run into as Hanukkah is what at this time was called the Feast of Dedication. It was a celebration of, of an act that God had worked miraculously in the intertestamental period, after Malachi, before Matthew, that we don't have in the scriptures as far as history is concerned, but we know from history what happened. And they were celebrating the reality that God had delivered them in a very unique way. And the irony should not be missed by us of the fact that they were celebrating the Feast of Dedication, which is God miraculously saving his people, and while they're looking face to face with the one who came in to miraculously save his people, and they hate him. The irony should not be missed on us, and John is not letting it be missed on us. He doesn't have to mention why Jesus came in town, because it doesn't even have anything to do with the passage. Or does it? The Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. Even John includes, it was winter. And the Colonnade of Solomon is not some nice heated place that's inside that has a nice roaring fire. No, it is an open-aided colonnade outside with a roof and with columns, but it is open to the air. And it is not comfy to be in in the winter, even in Israel. The early church actually gathered in that colonnade to sing praises to God when they were coming to the temple daily. That same place, Jesus is walking around the temple. And all the Jews were gathering around him and said to him, Stop keeping us in suspense. You need to speak to us plainly. And again, revealing the heart. What was the intention? All we need to get you to do is to state plainly that you are the Messiah, that you consider yourself God, and we can put you to death. That was the goal. Speak to us plainly. We want clear words. Speak into the mic. There's going to be plenty of witnesses around so that we can come and try the claims of blasphemy that they were looking to trip him up with. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But Jesus answered directly back to them. 
I have already told you. And you don't believe. Where did he tell them? You've gone through 10 chapters of the Gospel of John. Where did Jesus tell them about who he is? Well, in the last chapter, before Abraham was, I am. In, the, in this very same chapter, six months prior, at the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, what does he say? I am the good shepherd. A fulfillment of what was told to the prophet Ezekiel, where all the shepherds of the people of God had been just filling them up, filling themselves up, and not actually giving the people the revelation of God, fleecing the flock. And so God said to Ezekiel, forget it, I'm not going to send any more shepherds, I myself will come and be the good shepherd. Jesus stating that he is the good shepherd to anyone who had read Ezekiel would know exactly what he is claiming. The miracles that he has done. The statement that his flesh and his blood brings eternal life. That he is the water of life. That he is the Messiah. He identifies to the woman from Samaria at the well in John chapter 4. That he does miraculous things that only the blessing of the Lord can do, turning water to wine in John chapter 2. That he turns just a few loaves and a few fishes into a myriad amounts of them. In John 6, that he walks on the water across the Sea of Galilee, and everyone's confused. How in the world did you get over here? We watched all the boats. Yeah, I know. The calming of the wind and the waves. The healing of the man born blind in front of everyone. A man that they all knew. The problem is not a lack of works, and the problem is not a lack of words. The problem is you do not believe. Jesus could state over and over and over plainly such things. And lest we get proud in our own state of belief, remember the disciples had been taught over and over and over again that Jesus was going to go up to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, he was going to be killed buried, and on the third day rise again, and not one of them heard those words well. And they tried to forbid him. And when it occurred, they all abandoned him. The problem is not information. The problem is a heart of stone. And without God's intervention, every one of us would remain in that unbelieving state. And so John is having us interact with this. Remember, Why is John writing this entire thing? It is so that the reader of the Gospel of John may believe on Lord Jesus Christ and live. He said, but if the problem of belief is so deep into the stony heart, who could possibly be saved? How can any of us ever come to this salvation? How is it that such faith can be present in my life? What can I do? Is there like a spiritual gym to go work out? How is it that faith comes to the heart of those who have stony hearts? Well, again, we come to Jeremiah. We come to Ezekiel. 
that God is going to remove the stony hearts and replace it with a heart of flesh on which he will write his law and change our desires and change what we aim at and change what we love. Faith is not natural to us. Not saving faith. Faith is not natural to us. God must gift us to new hearts. The problem of salvation is so deep that we cannot even perceive it. And here Jesus has us interact with one piece of it. I have already told you plainly, and you don't believe. I've told you how long I have been. John the Baptist told you that I come before him because I was before him, even though I am physically younger. You didn't believe John the Baptist, you had him killed. You don't believe me, you're going to have me killed. And John is facing his readers, you and I, with our own weaknesses. Hear the words of Christ. Believe on them and you will live. What is the antithesis? Believe on them not and you will die. He who seeks to preserve his life, the Lord Christ says, will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will truly find it. I came that my people might have life and that more abundantly. An eternal life that starts at the point of salvation and continues through the grave and continues through the judgment of this world in the righteousness of Christ to which we will see God face to face. And Jesus says to this group of people that's coming and asking for perfect clarity, I don't want parables, I don't want hiddenness, I don't want types and shadows in your miracles, just say it straight to us. Are you the Christ? And he says, I have already told you straight, it's not a matter of clarity, it's not a matter of knowledge. You do not believe me. And it's not even a lack of words. What does he do? He connects them to the two-pronged presentation of who Christ is. It's not just the words that I've already spoken to you plainly. What does he say here at the end of verse 25? But also the works. Even if his words were not plain, his works and his miracles are. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Not only what I say, but what I have done. And what you cannot deny. And you have to understand, this group of people has seen the miracles of Christ with their own eyes. And still would not believe. Many are those who live in the modern world that imagine that if they would believe Christ, if only they saw a miracle. Just give me a sign. Maybe if God showed up and spoke audibly to them, they would listen and submit immediately. It comes from a misunderstanding of how deep our sin actually is. To one who will not believe, even if one, Christ says, comes back from the grave to warn you of the death to come, it still wouldn't work. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is an unbelieving heart. Because by nature, we do not believe on God. By nature, we rely on ourselves. 
I can figure this out. Or maybe I can go to the philosophers and see how they can help me out. Or in our culture, science or politics. Depends if it's an election year as to how much you trust your politicians, people who get paid to lie to you. By nature, we must believe something. And in sinful nature, it will never be God. And what John is putting to us is to say it is not a lack of knowledge. And he is writing two generations after the events that took place with Jesus in Jerusalem there. He is writing to people who will never see Jesus face to face and who never saw a single miracle by his hand. And he's saying to them, the words are enough. And look at the people around you that are Christians. Look at the works of their life. Look at their love of one another. You say, well, I've never known Christians that love one another. Then you've never met a Christian. And I'm sorry to tell it to you. Because the fellowship of Christians is the primary work of God in this world. When you interact with his word and it changes your heart and it speaks faith, it speaks peace into your life that you have no natural ability to perceive and instead it draws you to him. That we may be thankful in the midst of our sufferings. That we may be rejoicing in the midst of our circumstances because it makes us patient for the world to come. Christians are fine with the suspense of the future because we know the one we're traveling with. We don't need to understand what's going to come upon our path in the next year. We don't need to know where we will be five years from now or 20 years from now. We know who guides us. We know who we walk with. And thick or thin, thorny or straight, we will blaze those paths. And we will do it not alone. He says to them, I've made it clear to you in word, but you did not believe. I made it clear to you in works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, and there even uses legal language to them. It is proof, and it's not enough. My sheep becomes his focus. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. In the church today, many, many, many people draw a line of separation between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus. And we are fools to do this. Because the scriptures put forth, there is one God, almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ the righteous, through whom all things were made. And there is one spirit, one God, forever and ever. There is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. It's one of the oldest heresies in the church. There is no disagreement 
between the Father and the Son. There is no disagreement between the Son and the Spirit or the Father and the Spirit. Our triune God intends to save his people, and so will he. And what Jesus is expressing here is the same God who has spoken to his people for thousands and thousands of years is walking in your midst, and you won't listen to his words just like you do not hear his prophets. You do not hear his scriptures. There are those who imagine that all we have to get back to is an authentic Jesus of our own creation, and then we don't need that buggerly scripture anymore always telling us we're wrong. When Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, you have to understand not only what he is physically saying to them there, but in his revealed, inspired word. And there, the only thing written so far was what we call the Old Testament. My sheep, he speaks as God, hear my voice. It has been present in the world since it was made. Don't eat from that tree. Eat of all the other trees. They're good for food, promise. In fact, there's a super tree over there too. It gives you life. What more could you need? It will heal you, your sicknesses. It will nourish you to immortality. You will not die unless you eat from that one over there. The word of Christ has been in the world since the creation. Do not forget, this is the same one who through all things made the world. That's how John introduces us to him in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Go back and read it. The same one who walks on the surface of the lake is the same one who made it. The same one who heals eyes with dirt is the same one who formed our bodies from the dust of the earth. The same one who multiplied fishes and loaves is the same one who has fed us our daily bread when we were wandering in the desert with the people of Israel, giving them bread to eat every morning. This is one and the same God. And he expresses to them, you who are confused, you who do not hear my words, who do not believe my words, who see my works and harden their hearts, there's only one outcome. There's only one conclusion. You aren't my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep see my works and they love them. Let me give you a New Testament example of it in 1 John. If you think you can love the Lord while not loving those whom he is saving, the love of Christ is not in you. If you think that you can love the Lord and not love his people, you are sorely mistaken. If you think you can love the Lord and then live an individual life in service to Christ and not have to interact with, answer to, be submission to, or serve other Christians, you are sorely mistaken about what salvation is. If you think you can love Christ and not love his word, you are sorely mistaken. If you think you can love God and not love Christ, you are sorely mistaken. If you think friendship with God is compatible with friendship to the world, you are sorely mistaken. 
Jesus had spoken of himself as the good shepherd. And he speaks of the reality that there are complete and total differences between the sheep that are brought into his singular flock. If the differences among sheep are enough to get you to say, you know what, they're not even sheep at all. And you think you're in good cahoots with the shepherd, you're sorely mistaken. Christ Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, has redeemed for himself sheep from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people of this world. And they will stand in one voice and glorify him who lives forever. We here forget that we sit at the ends of the earth. This is as far away from Jerusalem as you can basically get without being in Hawaii. As far as the ancient worlds was concerned, when the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, we're the uttermost parts of the earth, you and me here today. And the gospel has come here. And the word of Christ has dwelt richly amongst us. Not because of good works we have done, but because God set it in his mind to save you and to save me and to bring us into his fold. And he is a good shepherd. He is a good shepherd and brings life to his sheep. He brings them to pastures where they can feed. He brings them to water where they can drink. And his word is enough. And his miracles are enough. His sanctification is enough for us. The sufferings of Christ that we fill up that are lacking, the sufferings of our life, are good to us. And we thank God for them. Because although they are frustrating, it is in our endurance that our assurance comes. For the one who endures to the end will surely be saved. He says to them, you want more words and more works. What I have given is sufficient for those who will believe. And if you are my sheep, you would have already heard it and you would have already believed. The reason you do not believe is you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. Look at the order. I know them. And then they follow me. Salvation of God is worked in his hand at his time to his people. You say, but I, I would really like it if, if, if I could take credit for following Jesus. He's really lucky to have me on his team. <laughs> it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but I promise you our culture is bent on this. I am what I decide. The same thing is here. Jesus says, no, you're not. You are what I call you. The reason you do not believe is you're not my sheep. You don't have the capacity to believe me. Don't think that another word and another work and another miracle and another wonder is going to do it. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Who remembers this? The rich man had all of his comforts during his life. Right? All of his comforts, had everything. I don't need God. I don't need to focus on any of that. I just will rely on myself. This is why riches are so deceitful. They teach us that our comforts are blessings rather than things that will actually distract us from our sufferings. 
and our thankfulness to God. It is far more easy for a poor man to follow Christ than a rich. That is what Christ teaches. doesn't mean riches are bad. It means they're distractions. And so the rich man during his life had all these comforts. He doesn't need God. I have plenty of funds. Why would I need to pray for anything? Why would I need to do anything? Okay. Lazarus, who's sitting outside his gate. Poor, sick, so sick that the dogs came up and licked his wounds, had none of the comforts of life but knew the sufferings of this world and instead followed Christ. They followed Christ. Isn't this during the gospel? Well, first of all, it's a parable. And second of all, yes, followed Christ. Every Old Testament saint followed Christ. They just didn't know who he was physically yet. Same God. And so what happened? They both died. What does Jesus say about this? The rich man went to torment. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom in comfort. Why? What was the deciding difference? It wasn't one was rich, one was poor. No. One believed in God and one did not. One relied on God's provision and one relied on his own. One relied on his theology, one relied on revealed theology from God. What does he say? Rich man says to Lazarus, says to the Lord, says to Abraham, I hate this place. I'm going to paraphrase here for a second. I hate this place. I just want a little bit of water on my lips just to, just to alleviate the frustration. The answer comes back, did you ever do that for Lazarus? You who thought you were successful for the law? Did you ever do that? No? Okay. No. Fine then. The rich man says, let me go back to my brothers. I have six brothers. Let me go back to them and I'm going to warn them about this so that they will rely on the Lord. Who remembers one of the most important answers in any parable? Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, that is shorthand for the scriptures, they will not listen to you even if you rise from the dead. If the scriptures aren't enough, if the voice of the Lord is not enough, nothing will be enough. Even if their own brother rises from the dead. In fact, it will not be enough though anyone rise from the dead. And here is this. Christ rose from the dead and wouldn't you know it, still wasn't enough for the rulers. And said, what did they do? But pay off the guards to say his disciples came at night and stole the body. They knew he rose from the dead. And they still rejected him. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is not exposure only to the words of Christ. Sure, the words of Christ are those through which salvation comes. But once they are heard, to desire more words and more works and more proofs only reveals an unbelieving heart. It does not reveal a curious heart. A curious heart is given by God to find Christ. And once he finds Christ, it is enough but to see Christ and hear his words and see his works, and it is not enough, does not reveal a curious heart, but a stone-dead heart. And so what Jesus says here is, I've done enough, and I've said enough, and you do not believe. John includes this to his readers. I hear at the midway point, 
Reader, how are you interacting with this? How you doing? He's checking in with us. Are the words of Christ enough to dwell richly in us? Are the works of Christ enough to have us depend on him in the midst of anything? Do you believe on him? His sheep hear his voice, John says to us. He knows his sheep, and they follow him. And here's where we get the first presentation of the effect of the gospel, verse 28. Jesus says, my sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Physical death is an atrocity of the full. Physical death is torment to us. It rips from us relationships that are meant to be eternal. Jesus will constantly make reference to this reality that in following him, in trusting in him, brings unending life. You say, how is that possible? Christians die all the time. Yes, they do. And Jesus addresses this aspect. The one who seeks to save his physical life will surely lose it. You don't have that ability. And your physical life will be all that you hope in. But the one who loses this physical life for the sake of Christ and for the gospel will truly find it. Not just in some sweet by and by, but today. Abundant living here, now. Interacting with the creation in the most unique Christian way possible because the one that we follow made every leaf and blade of grass. And so the way in which we interact with the world, the way in which we love the people of God, the way in which we serve one another out of purified hearts is born out of this new life that Christ has given to us. He says, not that they earn eternal life, not that they just follow Jesus as a great example. No, that's what... That's what False theologians. I was going to be mean for a second. Let's just call it false teachers teach. (laughs) Hang on a second. I derailed my own thought train. It's good to have filters, but sometimes they mess you up. If it's not clear, I hate false teachers. He gives them eternal life. Notice it is not them purchasing it. It's not them earning it. It's not them just living it. It's not just looking at Jesus as a great example. He is a great example. Of course he is. He's God. But that's not enough. You can't look at Christ and say, oh, I'm going to walk exactly how he walked. No, you'll end up depending on yourself. Depend on him. His righteousness Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else filters down. That's exactly what he teaches. Why does he say this? Because 
Eternal life is a gift. It is not something we work up towards. It is not something we achieve. It is not something we earn. It is not something we pursue. It is something that is given to us. And he says the result of it is they will never perish even though they die. It means the grave has no power over them anymore. It means the hopelessness of losing another in Christ will not overtake us. It will not define for us who we are. And it will not take our hope. Though it tries time and time again. And if anything's going to take our hope, death will try. And will try its darndest sometimes. But even if we are to perish or to lose those and lose our physical life, we will not be snatched out of the hand of our Savior. Christian, all of us will die someday. There have been many generations of the church. All of them hoped that they would be the last one and not have to endure it. May I encourage you? Face it with hope. The one who calls us calls us beyond the grave and through it. He does not have us walk a path that he did not already walk ahead of us. The path that we will walk will be in his footsteps and with his beckoning. Do not face the end of physical life with hopelessness. Face it with confidence. The one who spun the galaxies is the one to whom you entrust your soul. Though you die, you will live. We have been given eternal life. And we will never utterly perish. I do not care what our culture thinks. Our story is not over when we go to the grave because we're merely material. I can't think of something more hopeless. I can't think of something more worthless. What does he say about his sheep in verse 29? My father has given them to me. I give my sheep eternal life, but Christ himself has received a gift from his father, you and me. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the fact that Christ endured the cross because there was a joy set before him. You and me. His sheep get eternal life as a gift and Christ gets us as a gift. Not because he is lacking in anything, but because he loves us. My Father who has given them to me, who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. My Father and I are one. We are one in essence, but there is a, if you like linguistic turns, it's one of the most important because it speaks to us about how the Trinity interacts. Let me get nerdy for just a second. You say, just a second, that's, that's just you. Let me be me for a minute. Let me be me for a minute. 
Verse 30 is, I and the Father are one. Greek, God in his inexplicable wisdom used Greek because you can actually make differentiations like this. So if you like nerdy linguistic stuff, listen to me for a second. If you don't, continue tuning it out. (laughs) He uses the masculine, I, and then he uses the masculine. And the Father are one, neuter. If he was trying to state that he and his father are the same person, he would use the masculine. That's how Greek works. He intentionally uses the neuter version of saying we are one to say this one thing. We are the same God, but we are different persons. By the way, for those who think the Trinity is not in the scripture, this is one of the verses where it's clearly expressed. The reason we don't think it's in there is because we don't know Greek. But John knew Greek, and so did Jesus. And he said this exact thing to state this. If you think for one second that there's a differentiation between the Father and I, in essence and in purpose, you are wrong. We are one. The only thing that's distinguished between us is he's the Father and I'm the Son, but we're the same God. And he gives to the Jews that day exactly what they asked for. Tell us plainly. And he says, I already told you. I already did the works. I already did this. You don't believe, but here it is. I'm the same God. It is a remarkable statement that doesn't show up in English. And it's unfortunate. And it's why you should all study Greek, because it's an amazing language. But he says this to give them hope, those who are actually his sheep. You can't be snatched out of my hand, even though you're going to see me go to the cross soon. You will not be snatched out of my hand because I am the same God who made this world. I am the same God. The Father and I do the same works. The works he intended are the ones I do. The Spirit as well, by the way, because I don't do any of it without him. And the same words, the same voice, the same message from Genesis onwards, is what is on Jesus' lips. And what he says here is, it's because I'm the same God. And I could tell you a hundred years, a hundred thousand times, and you still will never believe because you're not my sheep. Christian, that should be the most humiliating thing for you to ever learn. Because when you are asked then, why do I believe? Why am I a Christian? It should shred any hope that you have that you said, I came and verified who Jesus was and uh, it was good enough for me. No, it wasn't. God brought life into you, worked faith in you by the preaching of the gospel and brought you to life again. You know what your primary relationship then is? Thankfulness. Thank you, God, for pulling me from the fire. Thank you, God, for pulling me from the grave. Thank you, God, for setting my feet, not on sand, but on rock. Thank you, God, for giving me a life I did not deserve, do not deserve, and could never preserve. Thank you, God, for being merciful to a sinner like me, Thank you for giving me hope, no matter what comes my path. Give me the strength to walk with you wherever you would have me go and find me faithful 
to the end of my soul. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray. We pray the words that are found in the book of Hebrews, that there is not found among us an evil and an unbelieving heart. But Father, for all those who hear, may the goodness of Christ be our delight. May his gospel be enough. May his death bring us hope. And may his resurrection bring us life. We thank you, Father, for what he has done. We thank you for what he has said. We thank you for your word. For you have done and said so many other things. And here at the end of the world, you have seen fit to give us bound copies of your revelation. May we read them like our lives depend on it. We pray this in your son's name.